This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. This episode is brought to you by Reese's Peanut Butter Cups. In breaking news, leading scientists worldwide are conducting experiments to determine if Reese's Peanut Butter Cups are the perfect combination of peanut butter and chocolate. However, it appears the study was inconclusive, as the scientists couldn't help but eat all the Reese's. Because when you want something sweet, you can't do better than Reese's. Find Reese's now at a store near you. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to New Books in Food, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm Amir Sayadabdi, the host of the channel. Today, I have the pleasure to talk to Dr. Emily Contois and Dr. Zenia Kish about their new book, Food Instagram, Identity, Influence, and Negotiation, which was just published in 2022 by University of Illinois Press. Emily and Zenia are both assistant professors of media studies at the University of Tulsa. Emily is also the author of Diners, Dudes, and Diets, How Gender and Pop Power Collide in Food, Media, and Culture. Emily and Zenia, thanks for accepting my invitation and welcome to the show. Thanks so much for having us. Happy to be here. Um, to start off, uh, could you please uh, tell us a bit about your personal and also research background, please? Sure. So there will be more commonalities between our stories and divergences, which I think is part of the strength of this book, um, that we share PhDs in American studies. Um, I studied at Brown and my research broadly is really interested in how our identities are made in media, through media, at the vital intersection of food, bodies, and ideas about health. And so that's a part of my first book. It's a part of this edited collection that we did together. It's a part of all my chapters and articles. Um, and it's a culmination of the interdisciplinary, you know, graduate training that I did, that I have three masters, one in American studies, one in food studies um, from the gastronomy program at Boston University, and then another in public health nutrition from UC Berkeley. So I'm really interested in how ideas about nutrition circulate in culture and make meaning, um, ideas about ideal bodies, how those collide with ideas about good food, good health, good people, good citizens, uh, that those are a lot of the questions that animate my work. And so Zenya and I both came to the University of Tulsa in 2018. So we've had four interesting but really fruitful years, especially working on this book. Uh, thank you. And Zenya? Yeah, so um, 
The intersection of food and finance and media studies has characterized a lot of my work. Um, so as Emily mentioned, I, I come from a very interdisciplinary background and also did a PhD in American studies, um, which is uh, a place, um, uh, at least in the U.S. institutional context, where you can do just a big, big range of types of works and bring different methodologies to bear, often multiple methodologies to bear on very complex social, political, and cultural questions. So my dissertation work was um, actually looking at um, financial, specialized ethical financial cultures in the wake of the 2008 financial crisis. And part of what I was interested in was how after the financial crisis um, in 2007, 2008, that unfolded into a larger global food crisis um, as we saw you know, food price shocks and inflation and things like that. And investors suddenly started parking a lot of money in agricultural land. So I was paying a lot of attention at that time to um, the kind of what was being called a, a global land grab by investors and how that was affecting food markets, commodity prices, and um, food insecurity in many spots globally. So I, I, I've grown up always thinking a lot about the politics of food, and that's something that's, that's very complex, and you have to come at it from a lot of different directions. And, and uh, it's overlaps with my work and interest in ethical finance, whatever that means, um, is, is something that, that really persists. And so I, I look a lot at um, agriculture and, um, and evolving um, models of both farm financing and also technologies on the farm. So um, one of the arguments that Emily and I are, are really trying to push in our work here and elsewhere is thinking about um, food and farming as media forms and media practices. So what does that mean? How is the farm, for instance, becoming a more mediated space right now? It's being overlaid with all these networked digital technologies from farm sensors to, you know, um, uh, communicating internet uh, connected tractors that are collecting data as they sow fields. And, uh, and so I'm, some of my work is, is thinking um, very much about how farms are mediated and what that means for our food supply as well as our food cultures. Thank you very much. Um, there is um, often a story behind every book, right? Uh, what's the story behind uh, this book? I mean, how did this book come about? So an editor actually reached out to me of just, you know, Emily, there isn't a book on food Instagram. Like maybe this is something that you should do. And I was hesitant. I sat on it for like six months, nine months, because I was, you know, hard at work on my first book, Diners, Dudes and Diets. But the book didn't exist and it needed to. Um, Zenia and I were so shocked when we you know, started the original, you know, sort of call for abstracts that there's been, you know, a study on sort of Facebook and Twitter, but not on Instagram. And then the vital role of food and food-related phenomena on the platform was something that just needed to be addressed. So I asked mentors, you know, oh my goodness, you know, should I edit this collection? Everyone told me no, but they were like, if you're going to do it, you know, having a co-editor, right, is often this really good step to have someone to think with, someone to divide up the work with. Um, and instead, right, in Xenia, we weren't project managers, right? And sort of, you know, you work with these authors, I'll work with these. Um, we put both of our brains behind every chapter, worked with every author really closely. Um, that this is a book that benefited from, you know, all the knowledge that we both have um, from our various perspectives, you know, studying critical food studies as well as media studies. Um, and so we, you know, do our call for papers 
trying to get, you know, a little bit under 20 good chapters. And we were so delighted to have dozens and dozens and dozens come in. Um, and so the resulting book was really trying to create this balanced collection that was also a, a first step for the study of this specific subject, um, but also specific, you know, subgenre um, that we see happening on Instagram. And so it was just absolutely perfect for us to do this book together. Um, how about you, Zenia? I mean, um, how was the beginning of this journey for you? Were you also kind of hesitant, as Emily mentioned, or? <laughs> yes. Yeah. Taking on an extra book project while you're working on your primary tenure book um, is, is uh, a big investment in time and feels, um, as Emily mentioned, a little bit risky, something that mentors um, might tell you to wait until you have your, your other book all completely off to the printers um, uh, before you take something like an edited volume on. Um, in academia, they kind of have a reputation for becoming unwieldy and, and, and taking a very long time. And one of the things that, um, as Emily mentioned, one of the ways that we really were able to, to complement each other's skill sets was um, in keeping each other and this huge team of very interdisciplinary global scholars who joined us, keeping us all on track. <laughs> So on the one hand, we're trying to build this complex interdisciplinary conversation between um, parts of the book, between authors, between case studies, and also between approaches to looking at Instagram and, and all of the food practices that take place there. Um, and on the other, we're trying to keep this book on track during a pandemic as <laughs> the technology is changing, as food trends are changing, and trying to, to really keep it um, such urgent and such um, uh, of the moment kind of work, really keep it um, moving along so that it can come out. Because these are the kinds of projects that that sometimes, you know, can take five years or something. And we really didn't want that to happen. Um, so so that's one of the, the things that, that we both put a lot of effort into. And, and we've put in a lot of time over the last two years. Um, and we're really excited about it. It's become such a tight volume with so many fabulous links between um, chapters that weren't necessarily there beforehand because our authors came to us with so many fabulous ideas. Um, but they, uh, but these were scholars who, and writers and artists and um, a journalist um, and, and people from very different backgrounds who are often reading very different types of things. So they were, they were drawing on different theories or frameworks or looking at very different kinds of case studies or approaching their subjects in very different ways. And that's one of the strengths of the book is that diversity in examples um, and approaches. But also we had to make it coherent as a book. And, uh, and that's, that's really the primary work of editors is to find those threads, to suggest them to different authors. Oh, you might want to reference this other author in our book here, or you might want to make a connection to this idea, which we see kind of threading across um, different chapters. And so that's why we were reading and rereading and talking with each other all the way through to really um, tie those threads um, together more and, and, and make the book sort of um, a, a very coherent um, uh, and unique project. Um, thank you, Zenia. There, 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 were, there, there, there are a couple of things that I want to um, kind of follow up on uh, a bit later about uh, some of the things that you mentioned. But uh, for now, I want to follow up on something that Emily mentioned earlier. Um, if you had asked me uh, two months ago, uh, which was before I had seen your book, uh, how many books uh, are out there on food and Instagram? Um, I would have guessed around 15 books. That would have been my guess. I would have said that it's probably <laughs> one of those topics that have been done to death. 
So imagine my surprise when I came across your book and I read, um, I think in an introduction or somewhere that this is the first book on Instagram and food. So, um, and, and this was like a shock to me. Uh, and I'm someone who is into food studies. I'm doing anthropology of food. So I'm going to ask you the question that I ask myself then, how come there has been no book on the intersection of food and Instagram, a platform this popular, a platform that is so visibly linked to food. Um, how do you explain this lack of research? So we'll first acknowledge that there is a growing and um, really fascinating literature on digital food studies um, that looks at food in these various digital and often social media spaces. But even within them, right, there'd be like maybe a chapter um, on uh, Instagram in particular, or perhaps a particular author was looking at how a particular influencer or even food product, right, is represented sort of across platforms that they were using it in a comparative way. But there hadn't been this deep investigation um, of Instagram itself within the media studies literature when we compare it to other social media platforms. Instagram lags behind by a significant factor um, of being very understudied. Um, and then even within this digital food literature, there was often a lot more on sort of YouTube um, or looking at, you know, other, other sort of apps. And so from a, you know, feminist sort of food studies perspective, you know, when we think about, you know, where the study of food fits in, right? Right, with sort of the cultural turn in history or, you know, its roots in, anthropo in anthropology in particular, right, from sort of this cultural um, sort of perspective, um, that food was often slower to be paid serious attention because of its um, attachments to the feminine, to the quotidian, to the home, to the domestic, to the everyday, um, that scholars were slow to turn to it. Um, and so we see that similar sort of reticence sort of amplified, right, of a, a slowness to study food in particular, um, and then also to study Instagram as an app um, that had, you know, specific um, sort of intonations and sort of perceptions. So maybe that's where I'll toss it to Xenia, because remember she thought a lot about how do we frame our call for abstracts and our call for papers um, as we think about, you know, what Instagram was at that time and how it was perceived and where food fit into that. Yeah, the, there's a lot to, there's a lot to be said there. And um, part of, uh, part of what we sort of hypothesized was going, would, was going on with this um, relative lack of attention um, to food on Instagram when we started was that both food and a primarily visual social media platform were, were both seen as somehow less important to big events or big things that were happening at the time, right? So when we started talking about this in uh, 2016, 2017, uh, no, sorry, a little bit later than that, 2018, when we started working on the book, um, there was a lot of media coverage around things like um, Facebook and Twitter influencing elections and having, having a, a very um, outsized and pressing impact on global politics, on um, misinformation, on, on what we're seeing as these, you know, very real world important problems that were changing things, um, uh, the unfolding of history in the world. And Instagram being aligned with a much more visual um, uh, mode of communication was just not seen as having quite the same amount of importance or pressing need to understand what was going on on the app. So, so um, part of what we're trying to do is with this book is, is really 
focus in on what are the specific affordances that the Instagram platform gives to such a visual presentation of food and food practices? Um, and how is that different from the other platforms that it's often either lumped together with or seen as just kind of a copy of? So um, Instagram coming after Facebook, coming after Twitter, um, was perceived by many media scholars as being either derivative or just a, a more unidimensional way of, of engaging um, with social media. And so uh, people were looking at Instagram more for either comparative purposes or um, as, a, as another case study to look at a bigger phenomenon or something like that. And so by centering Instagram and food with this book, what we're doing is pushing um, the investigation of its specific architecture. What are the things that it's offering food producers? So when Instagram started off, it had a very pronounced and identifiable aesthetic of the immediate, right? The snapshot aesthetic. It's, it's um, square frame, really um, directly quoted Polaroids. Um, and everything about the Polaroid is about capturing this instant. So you, you carry, you know, a Polaroid around with you, you take a photo in the moment and it's developed in the moment. And it has that sense of immediacy of being there, of being present and of logging um, this particular moment in time. And so that was, that was the original kind of associations, cultural associations with Instagram was, was really um, logging everything, you know, the everyday in the midst of it. Um, and that's something that's, that's shifted over time. And, and over the last, decade plus, food cultures have also registered that shift. So we've seen a big move from um, uh, an earlier, more kind of everyday logging of the meals that you have in different places, charting your daily rhythms and so forth, um, to a much more carefully curated, aestheticized, um, and uh, often more um, carefully planned visual aesthetic around food. And so restaurants had to adapt to that um, and, and increasingly cater to that. Um, influencers have built new business models around um, both as uh, recipe builders, as um, food influencers, as, as um, restaurant reviewers and so forth. Um, have really increased that curated aesthetic and have, have adapted to all the changes in the platform as it's evolved. So now we have stories and reels that require multimedia engagement, that require moving images, that require a lot more work to produce um, uh, the same kind of content to fill feeds. And so that's a shift that's been followed on many different levels by both those catering to it, like restaurants trying to produce that Instagram experience through beautiful restaurant settings and, and um, menus built around the most visually appealing and interesting or quirky foods from rainbow bagels to unicorn lattes um, and things like that um, to... Um, to people now pushing back against that because that became so uh, crystallized as the Instagram aesthetic that there's now very much um, an, an anti-Instagram aesthetic or an anti-polished um, look that people are charting a return to sort of everyday um, images of, of normal food. Um, and so, so by focusing in on what's happening on Instagram on this one platform, um, we've been able to chart much more coherently those shifts over time and how 
how they're linked directly to changes in the platform architecture um, and, and the kind of affordances that the platform offers and, um, and how that has evolved with user experiences, responses, and adaptations. Thank you. And the, these shifts that you um, speak about, Zenia, they always bring with them uh, sort of new terminologies. Um, and there's this term that we uh, hear sometimes when we are dealing with uh, many contexts uh, in which food is represented through visual means. And that's, that's the notion of food porn, which is uh, one of the, as, as I understand it, one of the key concepts that the chapters in your book theorize and complicate. Uh, for those listeners who may not be familiar with the term, could you tell us what food porn is or perhaps what food porn isn't? And uh, why is it important in interdisciplinary studies of food and media? So the term food porn, or at the time gastro porn, um, comes out in the late 1970s so, you know, as the first usage of it, um, which is also an interesting sort of cinematic moment um, when it comes to actual pornography in the United States. So there's this interesting sort of uh, collision already between sort of this where this word even comes from. And so on one level, when people use the word food porn, they're just referring to sort of like seductively beautiful food. So we're thinking, you know, chocolate oozing, you know, cheese pulls, um, you know, egg yolks, um, you know, sort of like gushing over a plate as a knife slices into them. Um, but it is an aesthetic, um, it's an aesthetic style that also has this sense of movement, um, this sense of liveness, um, you know, that you, you see it happening. It almost makes you salivate too, that there's this really, um, you know, sense experience, right? Of like, what is food porn capturing? What is it communicating? And so in the food studies space, there had been people thinking about how, um, you know, this ties into sort of these logics of seduction and of the senses and sort of how we experience food. But then also this way that the concept of food porn ties into this idea of the aspirational. And so food porn is often about, particularly on Instagram, about creating food that is so beautiful. It's using ingredients that are so esoteric, um, techniques that are so complicated to master um, that it seems out of reach of the everyday sort of food consumer or sort of home cook. And there's a danger, right, in this idea of food and cooking and being a part of it, um, creating this sense of distance, right, or this fence around um, sort of who creates beautiful food and has access to it and can be a part of it. Um, and so Barthes as well, right, in the mythology is like writes about sort of ornamental cuisine as he's looking through, um, you know, the pages um, of, of Mademoiselle or Elle, I can't remember which one, um, but just, you know, that this was cuisine that was shiny and had surface sheen and was ornamental um, and had this distinct meaning when it came to sort of the presentation of a middle class sort of class standing and what it meant to perform that through food. But I think what's great is to do a book at this intersection of food studies and media studies, right? That, like where people pushed me as you know a more food studies rooted scholar to think differently about food porn um, is this idea of the feminist study of pornography um, and of thinking about sort of the disembodied nature um, of the bodies that are represented um, sort of in that genre of film and so as we think about food Instagram and food porn um, and how it's disembodied from um, the actual hands that make it that grow it that labor 
over it. Um, that some of the work I'd done before we did this book together was thinking about the food pornification of cooking labor, of how these food Instagram and often food blog photos, um, even the mess is beautiful, right? Like there is no actual cooking effort being authentically captured in these beautiful, beautiful food porn photos. And so there are these issues, right, of the labor that is there, um, the dynamics of power that are represented um, or that are made to appear, right, too easy, too beautiful, um, that they're not um, sort of being acknowledged as we think about um, these images that are so beautiful and sometimes so therapeutic to just scroll through and consume. Um, but there is this whole process behind it um, that we're, you know, definitely digging into and critiquing in the book. And so one of the chapters... Um, is thinking about the meaning or the lack of meaning of hashtag food porn. And so hashtag food porn, as it is attached to images on Instagram, has almost no meaning, right? Like hashtag food porn goes with basically any picture of food um, as someone is trying to communicate what they think their image is about and to be able to hack into a larger conversation for their images to be viewed, um, to be seen, to be shared, to be liked. Um, that that's a part of, again, this sort of like architecture and structure of the app that we're interested in. And so when food porn becomes a hashtag, its meaning um, is diluted in a really interesting way, and yet it still remains really meaningful. So we ended up thinking of it in some ways in the book as a floating signifier, that it can mean different things to different people at different moments in different ways, um, that they have different investments in what they want it to mean and why. And we thought all of that is still rich to understand, to unpack, um, instead of tossing away the term, right? There are certainly food study scholars who think we shouldn't use this term, um, that it's sort of, you know, a clickbaity sort of word um, that takes conversations in different directions. But it comes up in so many chapters in the book in really rich ways to be able to think about a particular codified set of aesthetics, um, to think about the senses, um, to think about, um, you know, the hierarchy of the senses, to think about it from a feminist perspective, to think about labor. Um, so I could go on and on. But I think overall, this book is a defense of the concept that it's really useful. And one of the uh, additional things I'll say about why it is so useful for Instagram in particular, is this word we haven't said yet of Instagrammability of what it means for a uh, scene um, or, you know, a particular photo that you take, particularly of food, to be worthy, right, of being captured and shared and, you know, interacted with in the app and on the platform and in the networks that it creates, creates and makes possible. And so for something to be Instagrammable on food Instagram is to align with these aesthetic expectations that food porn laid out, um, which certainly have a longer lineage from sort of food film, where food fills the screen in the sensory way. We definitely saw it play out within the pages of, you know, food magazines. There's this big jump to food blogs where there was great literature, you know, thinking about um, sort of that notion of food porn within that earlier digital space. And then seeing how food Instagram really just you know, ups the ante, takes it to a new level. Um, so that's my little tirade in defensive food porn. That it's an important concept and one we should continue thinking with. And in our book, there are many, many scholars doing that. Thank you very much, Emily, for that. Um, I now want to go back to something that uh, you mentioned earlier, Xenia. Um, this is an edited volume, right? And one of the challenges uh, that editors of an edited volume usually say they have faced at some point is 
uh, thematizing the chapters, something that you also briefly mentioned, to give the book a sort of themed structure, because you get all sorts of paper from all sorts of people who are from all sorts of disciplines. So how was this process like for you? How did you come up with your thematic sections, which I believe are those you mentioned in the title of the book as well, namely uh, identity, influence, and negotiation. Uh, so how is this process uh, for you? And what do you discuss in each of these uh, sections, very generally speaking? Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's a great question. Um, and it's an interesting one to think about as both a researcher and as an editor and as somebody just trying to make sense of these phenomena out there that we're all engaging with on the platform. So um, Emily and I, when we first, um, when she came to me with this idea for the project and we first sort of tossed around ideas and we're brainstorming just for a CFP, how do we, how do we solicit contributions? What's it going to look like? What do we hope people will submit? Um, what kind of conversation do we want to build if we, you know, if we could just create this incredible book on food Instagram um, to fulfill all of our <laughs> interests and curiosities. So as we were drafting um, the, the language for the call for papers, um, we did keep coming back to two of, of these themes that eventually came to help structure the book. So identity and influence are two topics, um, or maybe broader thematics more accurately, that, that infuse so much conversation around Instagram, so many of the practices that we see overtly identify with being expressions of identity, self-expression of who I am or who I'm becoming or how I how I am the way I am. You know, we see this in all kinds of practices online from, you know, what I eat in a day to um, to uh, all the things that I cook or, or how I go about making, you know, different kinds of food specialty things, um, how I um, celebrate different holidays, things like that. So identity is, is really central to a lot of the, the common practices on, on a platform like Instagram. And the theorization that did already exist around it was often interested in things like how is Instagram like a kind of visual diary, for instance, um, and how do people use it to both express but also build a sense of identity. So we very explicitly called out um, and asked for contributions that were interested in intersections of identity, food, and Instagram. And unsurprisingly, there were a lot of people with really great projects in that domain. So that was, a, that was a, an area that really came together very um, organically for us. And so did influence. Um, we influencer is now an everyday word, you know, that my parents know how to use. Um, and it, it was newer when we were started working on the book, but the full force of the influencer economy was, was clearly taking shape at that point. And food, food industries um, are one of the earliest to take good advantage of that. Um, and, and so that was something that we expected uh, there would be, you know, interest in. And, and unsurprisingly, a lot of people wrote in um, with different examples of, of influencers. So we have in that section uh, contributions from um, researchers who look at uh, restaurant influencers in Hong Kong who go around and build a reputation around reviewing different um, restaurants and especially those that are mom and pop um, uh, uh, establishments that make traditional Hong Kong foods um, and that are especially connected with an idea of what is 
what is local food in Hong Kong? What does it mean in a place that has um, such a complex history of migration and, um, and belonging to or connected to different, um, different political systems and, and different ethnic groups and things like that? Um, so, uh, so the influencer section came together um, very easily as well. And then the, the final uh, overarching theme that emerged through the work that we did um, it ended up being negotiation. And that's one that we thought about from a lot of different directions. Um, uh, contributors were looking at issues like resistance, forms of resistance to um, overarching um, uh, norms and hegemonic expectations around food, what's good food, what's healthy food, how does one eat, how does one picture food. Um, so we had uh, different authors writing about transgressive and subversive food practices. So um, one of our interesting um, contributions comes from um, uh, uh, looking at uh, a restaurant in Copenhagen. So in the middle of this um, very minimalist new Copenhagen northern cuisine trend, which has been associated with healthy local vegetable rich foods, um, we see the rise of an anti sort of um, anti Copenhagen food aesthetic. Um, with uh, a chef um, who uses Instagram to post images that are very, um, um, very much take the food porn aesthetic that Emily just talked about and take it to such an extreme that sort of it becomes its own parody of what food porn could be. So rather than just um, showing images of very rich meals with sort of oozing, dripping gravies or sauces or something that's supposed to look very delicious because of how richly aestheticized it is, he takes that 10 steps further. And so he'll post pictures of himself naked in a tub full of really rich brown gravy that is, is so indulgent that it is kind of sickening to look at. Um, and so uh, we have, we have, um, uh, this strain of emergent food in, um, producers who are trying to build different forms of aesthetics, different languages for showing what food can look like and how to have fun with and often um, turn on, the, on their head the kind of um, norms um, of, of food aesthetics. So those three thematics then, um, identity, influence, and negotiation, um, We've separated them out for the organization of the book, but they do, each chapter um, touches on at least two, often three of those themes. Um, and so in that way, we kind of went back and forth on where to place chapters sometimes. We were very interested in that, um, that uh, synergy between um, these different themes as many authors were addressing both how identity and influence often play off of each other um, or question each other. So there's a chapter um, uh, from Deborah Harris and Rachel Phillips that looks at the Instagram practices and promotional work of um, what they call new Southern cuisine biscuit restaurants. So how is it that in the US South, um, this new trend of biscuit focused restaurants are trying to simultaneously claim a strong sense of authenticity by depicting classic 
biscuits that are associated with, with US Southern food going back quite a ways, um, at the same time as they're trying to disclaim other parts of the tradition um, that is associated with Southern cuisine, um, namely its rootedness in uh, plantation slave, slave economy me and so forth. So you've got um, a lot of these themes working together to carve out how is it that influence identity and often resistance, negotiation, or other forms of, of, um, of, of conflict um, working out these questions of who are we, what is food to our sense of self, what is food to our sense of community or region or nation, um, and, and how is our visual economy, especially on social media, playing into all of those things. Mm. And, uh, Maybe one. Sorry, sorry, Emily, go on. Thanks, Amir. Uh, I was going to say, one thing that I wanted to add is on this theme of negotiation, which really did sort of come out as we edited the chapters and saw the work that they were doing, is thinking about how the cover of our book would also sort of fall into that category, right, of negotiating, um, understanding the aesthetics that have sort of been codified and become hegemonic on Instagram, but also wanting to push back against them. Um, that uh, Casey Highsmith is one of the contributors in the book, and she also, you know, styled and shot this cover photo for us, which we love so much. And hope readers will too, um, of thinking about how do we create an academic book that has that Instagrammable quality that sort of calls out to you from the bookshelf or, um, you know, from the, uh, you know, bookshop or, you know, Amazon sort of scrolling webpage um, that looks like some of the content that you see on food Instagram, but still has that level of critique, still is bringing um, to the surface, right, the, the real sort of meat of what each of these chapters is diving into. And so on the cover, we have this, you know, phone cake upon which is represented in, you know, pink frosting and already beautiful Instagrammable cake um, that's then being sliced into, you know, to sort of represent the, you know, deeply layered um, sort of analytical um, deconstructive, you know, work that we're doing in this book to understand how food and Instagram sort of function. Um, and thinking about, right, this sort of anti-food porn aesthetic that even the food uh, Instagram aesthetic has incorporated of sort of you know, strategically placed messes um, of, you know, sort of uh, sprinkles askew and little bits of frosting and, you know, bits of the cake left on the knife. Um, and then there's, you know, a little bowl of sort of like heart-shaped um, sprinkles there as well of thinking about how much of our interactions with this app, right, is about how we would like to be perceived, how we want to interact with others, um, you know, the the behavioral psychological sort of findings we have of how we feel good when other people you know like our photos or comment or share them um, this question of virality as it sort of animates the app and what people want out of it um, that we thought really critically right designing um, and sort of thinking through right what do we want this book cover to look like what do we want to communicate it um, and then we were just so lucky that we happened to have a contributor who was talented enough to pull it off as well um, so as we think about this book you know, hopefully being read, being discussed, being taught, um, that we hope even the cover of the book brings forth a way to think about these key intersecting themes um, and to sort of bring that to bear too. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda, you never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. 
to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. I totally agree with you, Emily. I think this is one of those books that you can definitely and easily judge by its cover. I hope uh, so. Because... Yes, for once. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'm so sick of those, you know, boring covers. And this, uh, the the cover um, that was that was done by Casey was one of the favorite uh, things about the book for me. Um, another favorite things, uh, one of the most exciting things about the book for me was what it offered us in terms of methodology. I mean, you have 17 chapters in this book and they deploy different methods, different sort of sampling within different geographies and using different tools. Uh, and, and, and that's a big deal. So what would you say is your book's contribution in terms of methodology? So it's as interdisciplinary as both of our backgrounds are, and even further so because of the interdisciplinary and different discipline uh, backgrounds of the 23 authors and contributors across these 17 chapters. Um, and so I think maybe I'll start with one um, of thinking about the significant role of visual analysis. Regardless of what an author's background was, we pushed everyone to think about what image can you, do you want, right, to sort of include with your chapter not just as an illustration, but as an image that you are going to closely read and deconstruct and really bring this really um, deeply thought visual analysis forward, that that was really important to us as we thought about what food Instagram makes possible, how it's different from these other social media platforms, um, and as a methodology that we both care, you know, quite a lot about, right? Like Xenia teaches a lot more about visual analysis than I do. Um, and so I think in addition to, right, having this beautiful cover, we are also so grateful that our university here at the University of Tulsa um, supported us um, to be able to print the book in color. Um, so the University of Illinois did a beautiful job designing the interior of the book. Like I love the fonts, I love what they chose for the headings, but also amazing to have all of these images in the book in full color um, that I hope makes it more satisfying of a read um, and also to teach with, right? To sort of bring food Instagram to life within the pages of the book was really important. Um, so I think visual analysis is definitely one of the key contributions of the book. Um, and then maybe another that I'll just mention because it's sort of, you know, the methodological perspective that I'm always bringing um, is of, you know, critical discourse analysis as we think about taking you know, the basics of a content analysis and putting it within, right, historical context, cultural context, you know, political moments um, that a lot of the chapters in this book are thinking about what discourses are being made pop being made possible, are being intervened in, and what context are they within. That it's one thing to just analyze, right, the images on the phone um, of what they mean um, and how they interact, right, with text. I think that was another thing we focused on? What is the relationship between this very visual platform and so much of what's going on textually, whether it's in the caption um, of, you know, what a particular content producer or poster or user, you know, wants to communicate along with the image. Um, what's the role of emoji, right? Of sort of this in-between categories. We think about the visual, the textual, the communicative. Um, so those are two little pieces that I'll throw out. And I'm sure Zinnia had lots of other great ideas too, as we think about the methodology logical contributions here. Yeah, that's that's really great. And that's really important. Um, that last point that Emily made, especially um, one of the things that we really pushed um, our authors to, to 
deep in their thinking about and that we interrogated deeply in the introduction is, is how text and image work together. Because very often in social media, visual analysis is separated out from hashtag analysis, for instance, um, which a lot of hashtag studies have focused on and originate in Twitter, right? Where hashtags um, circulate the most. And so that's a, a very text-based medium. And so we, we really wanted to integrate um, that analysis together. Um, but I, I think a few other additional um, methodological contributions that we're making here across the book um, include um, a, a really broad comparative scope for thinking about food uh, and social media practices, digital media practices, in very global ways. And, and there are a number of chapters that have internal comparative components. So um, one really interesting chapter looks at the, um, the use of um, food uh, uh, Instagram images by a couple of populist politicians, conservative populist politicians in Brazil and Italy. Um, and, and she looks, uh, Sarah Garcia looks at um, how Matteo Salvini and Jair Bolsonaro both appeal to their voter base by eschewing the kind of um, more curated food porn aesthetic that's often associated with Instagram. Um, and they really try to show themselves as eaters of food of the people, right? We eat unfancy food, we eat good home cooking, and it is hearty, and it is not bourgeois, and it is um, and it is local, it is not imported, right? I'm proudly an Italian politician, and I'm going to eat my mom's homemade or homemade style Italian um, cooking, and that's why you can trust in me. I'm an authentic man of the people, that sort of thing. Um, but looking at that in comparative context really draws out how um, food media trends are connected to broader political populist movements globally, which is, you know, bigger issues that we need to think about in comparative terms. And so that's something that we see across the book. And, and um, there are a number of other books um, really pushing this idea of thinking comparatively, such as Global Brooklyn, um, a, a recent book that came out edited by Fabio Perasicoli and Mateus Halawa. Um, but this, this book is, is really far reaching in, in the range of case studies from different geographies and regions. Another thing that we're um, uh, that the book does very nicely, I think, is historicize many of the social media practices that we tend to think of as very, oh, this is entirely new, or this is just of this particular digital media moment. Um, and so um, we have a, a number of contributions that are trying to think backwards, more deeply engage with where do these practices come from, and how does their current form draw on adapt and reflect what came before. Um, so uh, another interesting chapter um, thinks about um, feminist food in, uh, establishments and eateries and how they have um, built or their Instagram practices have grown out of a longer genealogy of very analog practices. The, the, the act of, you know, printing and distributing simple um, pamphlets for their communities um, by feminists in the 1970s, right? Reaching out to, um, to women and um, especially to, to queer women and suggesting um, that their feminist eatery is a place to come and eat wholesome foods, but also a place to find community and to um, and to share culturally um, for events, for, for feminist education, for banding together and supporting each other, things like that. Um, and so she, she traces how older media practices like cookbooks and pamphlets and events and organizing have very much um, 
worked their way into some of the things that we see in these feminist digital practices today. So some of these same establishments have adapted to Instagram to continue to give their sort of the same kind of content, but in new formats. Um, and then also younger uh, feminist food entrepreneurs um, sort of um, look back at and, and sometimes quote or cite these longer forms of feminist communication. So really thinking historically um, is something that, that we're really glad um, comes through in the book. Um, and then another thing that, that we draw out, especially in a framework that, that we sketch out in the introduction is that um, media studies of, of social and digital media could really benefit, I think, in some ways um, uh, from looking at the kind of political economy informed approach in, in food studies that is always thinking about what is the longer um, supply chain where food comes from? How is it produced? What are all the different stages in which it is um, uh, connected to um, to labor, um, right from its origin, right from seed or right from, you know, um, uh, cattle or whatever it is on the farm, um, to how does food move through a very complex network of transportation, logistics, um, different layers of marketing and branding and other forms of communication and then preparation, whether that's home cooking, um, or whether that's at a restaurant or, or, or what have you. To, to the final act of consumption, um, we bring that kind of sensibility to thinking about what are all the different points of interaction, of cultivation, of production along the way, um, and how, how can we bring that, um, that lens, that analytical lens to social media production. So there tends to be a lot of focus on the final product, on what's posted, on the image of food. And the more we can, we can um, ask people to look back through that longer chain of production of both where does the food come from that's depicted, but also where does that image come from? What are all the different points of production that go into making a food image? Well, that's a really complex ecosystem. Um, and, and so, uh, one of the areas that that we start to sort of ask more about is how does the political economy of Instagram really bring together these vast worlds of digital media production and food production and consumption? Um, and, and, and how do we have to understand all the ways that they intersect um, uh, at many, many different points along the way? And I think that that's, that's also an area with tremendous growth potential for a lot more study, for really thinking through those, those political economic dimensions. That's any, uh, but did you also see any opportunities missed? Uh, not not only in terms of methodology employed, but also like uh, geographies and regions covered, topics explored, anything. I mean, if you were to write a sequel to this book, or if you could, uh, you know, write a second revised version of it, what would that book do that this book didn't or couldn't do? This is such a good question because we were writing the first book right on the topic of sort of food and Instagram and when we started that was the title right food and Instagram we played with hashtag food Instagram um, and so it was as we continued to do the work that we realized food Instagram wasn't just the relationship between sort of food as a very common and powerful subject on the app um, but that food Instagram was this quasi genre um, that had its own conventions its own social norms its own um 
you know, sort of commercial aspects as well um, that we were bringing to it. And so as that, you know, sort of developed, you know, we had this, you know, great influx of, you know, incredible projects to choose from. And so um, we did our very best, right, to write a global book, a transnational book. And so there are 12 countries represented. Um, but from the submissions and from, you know, how many pages you're allowed to have in an edited collection, right, we, we acknowledge the lack and wish we had had, right, work representing the use of food Instagram in Africa, most of Latin America, mainland China, India, um, and other significant regions throughout the world, um, particularly where the technological infrastructure would be different than um, the countries that are being analyzed in the book. Um, I think pondering more deeply, right? What connection does Instagram make possible um, in places with different sort of internet infrastructure, for example, um, would open up new lines of inquiry, right? Of like, how does this operate differently in different sort of geographical spaces, um, but also, right, everything else that goes along with geography. And so similarly, like we um, definitely analyze, right, race and dynamics of racism within our food system um, as we think about how it functions, how it how is it replicated on Instagram? How is Instagram a part of resistance um, against, um, you know, efforts like that within society? But I think there's still so much more that can be done um, of thinking about post-colonial critiques, for example, um, of the food system, of food workers and the conditions under which they labor, um, of thinking as well about these broader global, um, you know, digital infrastructures, um, that there is space to develop that further too. Um, we get a little bit into how consumer perceptions of Instagram are quite different than how they perceive Facebook and, you know, how many people, you know, are quite willing to, you know, just not use Facebook anymore, but they hold on to Instagram, that it means something different to users, even though it's been owned, right, by Facebook, um, you know, for many, many years at this point. Um, and so we continue to find, you know, sort of those aspects interesting. Um, to link back to the methodology question, like we definitely have a couple of chapters that are thinking in larger data sets um, as they thought about, you know, the many different aspects of accounts and of how Instagram functions that they could analyze. Um, but we would have loved to have a chapter that was drawing a little bit more um, from that kind of approach, something a little bit more um, mixed methods in, you know, bringing together this really rich, um, you know, qualitative analytic work that we're expert in um, with this more quantitative aspect. Um, but I think that work remains to be done. It would be really fascinating too. Um, I think one of the things that I'm interested in is how um, this anti-food porn trend is continuing um, to sort of expand. I think that's part of the increased popularity of TikTok, um, of wanting something that feels more everyday, a little bit more amateur, um, a little bit less sort of commercial and curated and careful. Um, and so as the way users interact with the app and the kinds of images that they create continues to change. The archive that Food Instagram creates um, will also change. And so I'll be so interested um, to have others, you know, do that work as well. Um, but I think that there is so much left to do. Like, I, I think we've laid, hopefully, right, a good menu, set up a system um, and laid out some really um, exciting, delicious things to start with. But we, we genuinely hope that others continue to push this, this field further. Amen to that. Um, as, um, and as sort of um, the final question about the book, um, I want to draw on the last paragraph in the book where you mentioned that when you were at the idea stage of this book, someone said to you that 
uh, your focus on a single platform is too narrow. Um, I was wondering what your response or reaction or thoughts were to that critic back then when you still hadn't started working on that book uh, and what your response would be now that you have spent the past couple of years working on this book. We knew they were wrong. <laughs> we wrote the book anyway. <laughs> yes. But I'll let Zinia say something smarter than that. But we, we immediately bristled. We were like, no, you're just <laughs> missing the point. Like there was so much to do on this single app that others haven't done. And we're very proud of what our contributors pulled off. <laughs> yeah, I would start by saying that I've never heard that critique lobbied at all of the myriad, myriad books written about Facebook or about Twitter. Um, I, I think that there's, or about blogs or, or so many other um, platforms or, 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 um, or quasi platforms. Um, they tend to be taken as inherently complex and having very different types of users and, and very complex conversations going on and, 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 and dynamics worth exploring on their own terms. And so it, it really was, and we've already mentioned this, but it really was surprising all around that Instagram, uh, forget about food Instagram, the first Instagram focused book was only published in 2020. And that was really just a broad overview and introduction to Instagram as a platform 10 years after it um, it went online and um, several years after it had already, you know, um, surpassed a billion monthly active users. And it continues to be one of the top um, most used um, uh, social media platforms with an incredible amount of engagement for for public figures, for corporations, for um, many of the important um, conversation starters in our media e ecosystem. And so um, we work very closely with students in um, who I think identify as, as uh, Gen Z now, but and, and previously we were teaching millennial students at the university level. And for years and years, a lot of my students have been saying that Instagram is the number one platform they use. Um, and so with all of this context, Emily and I kind of looked at each other like, uh, what do you mean that's it, it's too narrow a focus for a book? How, how are there not more books just focused on Instagram, considering what a massive social, cultural and economic uh, impact it really is already having. So, so we really thought that, um, and, and the evidence has, I think, borne us out that, that um, the scholarship is a bit behind the times and uh, on this particular platform. And the fact that it has already undergone so many changes, even in this last decade, in terms of its identity, in terms of how it works as a platform, in terms of the demographics who uses it, of who uses it and how it's used. Um, and in terms of the very complex communities that have built up on that platform, um, there's a lot of stuff happening that starts in Instagram and then may go elsewhere or may just stay on Instagram that defines it as its own social media space. Um, so for, for all of those reasons, it, it, it is something that we've heard a couple of times, but uh, it's, it's a very, it's understandable, but it's also very difficult to take seriously as, as a critique um, because there remains so much to be explored and studied. And especially, um, 
as we've been saying, I think this whole hour, beyond a lot of the buzzwords that we do associate a lot with Instagram, influencers and maybe food porn and, and a whole bunch of, of things that we directly associate with Instagram, there's a lot more to look at. And that's that's what was exciting as well when we started the book process is that once we put out our call for papers, we started hearing from people writing about stuff that neither Emily or I even knew about <laughs> that was happening on Instagram. So for instance, um, farmers, how do farmers use Instagram? That's not something that the average person stops to think about or pay attention to unless you're already, you know, maybe working in that sphere or something. Um, and so we have uh, two chapters that focus specifically on farmer uses of Instagram. And in fact, that's an area that that has a lot more room for growth and exploration. Um, food workers, how do they use Instagram and what does it do for them? There are so many um, elements to, to continue delving into that um, uh, building on all the wonderful ideas that Emily had about other gaps that could be filled and other things that need to, that need to um, come out in the food Instagram literature. Um, I think even the last two years have shown us that um, Instagram is really important during for community during times of crisis and change. So um, one could easily envision a book or about food Instagram during the pandemic. I think so many so many new foods um, trends started and spread and then disappeared on Instagram just in the last couple of years alone, um, and and have and have moved into other platforms or other spaces, whether that's, you know, um, a sourdough bread and things like that, but also, you know, the, the trend of, um, is it a cake, right? This kind of uh, playful genre that arose in our visual media um, of foods that, of cakes that are made to look like other foods and surprise, you cut into it. And that's not a telephone, that's a cake, right? It was a kind of whimsical, funny, magical thing that floated around for a while during the pandemic, just as a form of digital media entertainment. Um, and that has, since moved on and now entered reality TV um, world and things like that. So um, I think I think the fact that Instagram is part of um, uh, so many conversations, visual, political, and otherwise, um, the, the fact that it is so widely used, the fact that different generations are, are cultivating different ways of using it now, you have a lot of different what we call um, uh, in the scholarship platform vernacular or, or unique ways of using Instagram, different languages for different groups of people, um, that all of those things come together to make it still a very important um, platform with an ever-changing um, presence. And, and that's something that will be interesting to continue watching. And, and a, another important thing to understand is that we need to, in media studies in particular, um, so much of the conversation revolves around media in North America or media in North America and Europe. And like Facebook, um, it is a very globally used and globally engaged platform. And, um, and so I think that um, by having such a broad comparative global set of case studies, um, and also hopefully in the research going forward, thinking about what Instagram does visually in different geographies, also in different languages, in different um, food arenas, is, is going to continue to prove the ongoing relevance of this particular platform. I'm so glad that you ignored that comment and wrote the book anyway. <laughs> so, um, <laughs> Us too. Uh, yeah. 
there is obviously a lot more in the book and I encourage listeners to uh, pick up a copy. But before we wrap up the interview, I'd like to ask whether you're working on something right now or are you thinking about doing your research on a particular topic uh, in, a, uh, in a near future? Emily? Thanks, Amir. Um, the first thing I'll say is that because I was editing this book at the same time as working on Diners, Dudes, and Diets, that there was a space to think about, like, what does dude food look like on Instagram? So we're already sort of cross-pollinated, you know, back into sort of the first book. Um, and as I look to sort of my second research monograph, it's called Like an Athlete, um, that I'm really interested in how this idea that we all, right, should eat and hydrate and uh, work out and dress out and think and perform and act and be like athletes at all moments, um, how that idea has infiltrated our consumer culture. Um, and so that picks up some of the themes of this book, right? Thinking about um, commercial spaces, thinking about brand presence, thinking about influential ideas um, within a broader sort of historical, culture, political, economic moment. Um, so I'm in the early stages of that book, but that's what I'm working hard on right now. Oh, that's really exciting. I can't wait to read it whenever it comes out. Venia? Um, <laughs> um, so I, I'm working on a few different projects simultaneously, and uh, my main book project is not so much food related, but, but two other elements of, of um, food relevant work that I'm doing is continuing to look at digital technologies, changing and remediating the farm, turning the farm into a sort of networked communicative device. Um, so I'm, I'm working on a couple of projects that um, uh, examine how Silicon Valley has very recently in the last five to 10 years um, entered um, the food and ag tech spaces quite aggressively. So we have a lot of entrepreneurs, um, a, a lot of Silicon Silicon, um, uh, Silicon Valley venture capital money looking around for new areas to, to explore and exploit. Um, and, uh, and so um, ag both agricultural and food tech sectors have been growing very rapidly with a mass infusion of money into things like alternative proteins and, um, and um, automation, robotics, and other digital technologies, as well as um, new um, biotechnologies to enter into different different parts of the food system. Um, so I have something uh, about to come out right now on um, the food tech and ag tech pitching processes. So the kind of narrative uh, genre of, of the, the pitch, the, the entrepreneurial pitch and how that works in the food and ag tech space um, and, uh, and, and a few other projects in that vein. And then another thing that um, I'm very interested in right now um, and going to write a little bit about is um, the role of the tractor in the current um, Russian invasion of Ukraine crisis. Um, I, uh, our listeners may have seen some of these memes going around of Ukrainian farmers using their tractors to sort of tug away or pull off the road these abandoned or destroyed Russian tanks and, and, and things like that. Um, so there's this really interesting social media meme campaign going around trying to, to support the Ukrainian cause right now, sort of turning farmers into hero, unlikely, <laughs> unexpected heroes in um, this, this quite awful um, uh, war uh, situation. And so I'm very interested in, in, in what's going on there and what that says about the bigger um, uh, food politics of, of conflict and how social media sort of plays into and, 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 um, and figures that. That's fascinating and very important too. 
Um, do you have any further comments, Xenia? No, I, I, I just, uh, I think um, this was a bit of an unexpected project. And uh, Instagram isn't uh, the main area of my research um, by any means, but visual culture broadly is one of my main areas of interest. And so I, I just really grew a lot um, by learning from our authors, by doing a lot of new research to figure out how do we set up a book like this? How do we offer a framework for thinking through food Instagram? Um, and how might that be useful for the broader food, social and digital media landscape? Um, and by working with Emily um, through figuring out how to do all of this together and, and, and learning from each other's very different backgrounds in terms of, um, in terms of food studies and media studies. And uh, I'm just so thrilled that this book is out there and that it um, is full of such beautiful images. It is really a treat to be able to talk about, but also show um, food images um, in a book like this and still have it very affordable. Um, we're very happy that the publishers were able to work out such nice high quality images and we could include so many. Um, so I'm, I'm just so excited to have it out there and, uh, and I'm really glad that this came together. It's always those unexpected projects that we enjoy most for some reason, or perhaps that's my experience, I don't know. Uh, Emily, do you have any further comments? Yes, I'll pick up what, Zenia, like, what it was like working together, that this was um, my first sort of real true um, experience working with a co-author and with a co-editor. Um, and while there were certainly things we learned about how to work with one another, as everyone does, like our introduction is one of the pieces of scholarship I'm most proud of like ever producing. Um, and that I think it makes me think about some of the logics of the academy, particularly the disciplines that I've been trained in that are often about you know, single authorship and what counts and um, that this book is so much richer for both of us working on it and writing together. Um, and I do, again, just want to shout out like our 23 amazing contributors, like their, their work is so strong, their ideas were so creative and so rich, um, and they really contributed so much to the book. It is so much more than we imagined um, it would be or could be when we started. I'm so proud of everyone still creating it through a pandemic. We met every deadline together. We were a mighty little team. Um, and so we're very grateful to, to everyone who worked with us on the book. Um, and we sincerely hope that it's it's a jumping off point um, for other scholars as, as we think about food, as we think about Instagram, as we think about social media, um, and as we think about the value of edited collections. I think sometimes they get um, written off or, um, you know, we've all seen the cartoon, I'm sure, right, of, you know, academics doing an edited volume. It's like, you know, forming a band or something. Um, but I think an edited collection for this topic like really is so rich, so varied, so deep, um, so global, so multi-methodological, so multidisciplinary um, because of its many contributors. And so it is, it is so much greater um, for having been edited. Um, and we are just sort of overflowing with um, just happiness and joy that it's out in the world and thankful for everyone who was a part of it with us, including you, Amir. Thank you so much for having us today. Yeah, thank you, Zenia uh, and Emily, for coming on the show and speaking with me today and sharing your insight and your wonderful work with our listeners. I really uh, enjoyed reading the book, but I enjoyed it even more to uh, talk about it with you both. So thank you very much. Thank you. Thanks, Amir.